This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Magic Cooking. The Potosi Mint Fraud. Irony. And Pessoa Meets Crowley. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the fresh-baked apple pie, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But that's not Peter Frampton. That's beloved American chef extraordinaire James Beard and... It's not just apple pie. The apple pie is just the start, Robin. There's, oh, there's, there's Yankee pot roast and there's vindaloo. There's a big old platter of, uh, of, uh, pasta carbonara. Robin, are we in the gaming hut or the food hut? Because except for when Isaac brings the cheese plate, we don't eat this good in the gaming hut usually. Well, sometimes uh, huts overlap. Indeed they do, Robin, especially when beloved Patreon backer Jason Gorkish asks, are there certain foods or styles of cooking that might lend themselves to carrying magical effects? And I think we talked about food in F20 games in a sort of generic sense previously, spice trade routes and whatnot. And this time we're barreling down into the very special question of is food magic? And more importantly, can you pretend food is magic? And I think uh, we have a resounding answer of yes, because Robin Herbalism is a kind of magic, and herbs go in food. We're done. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, end of end of segment. Once we've covered everything in the segment, it's time to move. Oh no! Oh wait a minute. Oh, oops. Um, and yeah. uh, of course, there's Ayurvedic medicine, which is uh, the uh, an Indian alternative uh, medicine tradition in which uh, food uh, is thought to have uh, healing and or magical properties. So uh, yeah, that's it's part of regular uh, life, but in uh, I think both in the case of herbalism in our world and uh, Ayurvedic medicine and other equivalents, that that is the real world, uh, no fireballs, no turning invisible version. And I guess uh, the question then is, what if the act of cooking itself is a a magical act? And in a way, it is, right? It's the original act of alchemy, of harnessing fire. Fire, of course, is uh, big, both in real magic and in the tossing of aforementioned fireballs. And it's what 
allowed humans to extract greater nutritional value from from food and uh, uh, spurred you know our, our evolutionary progress. So exactly, Homo erectus uh, wizards had to just toss balls. <laughs> exactly. So uh, nothing could be more magical than that. And so the question is, what forms of cooking are most like? the sorts of rituals that would allow you to cast magic. But again, complicated ritual magic is not uh, often in the foreground in games because it is something that takes a long time and is easily disrupted and not something that you can uh, do uh, in the field when you're being attacked by centipede men. Yes. So <laughs> you can't very easily say to the centipede men. Now, uh, this really does need to be cooked low and slow because it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a marbled cut of roast. And so the fat needs to turn into gelatin from collagen. So just be patient. Yeah. The steak has to rest 10 minutes and then it's going to kick your ass. And then, then that's right. So, so in, in, a, in a way, steak is very like a, a wizard. Yes. Cause if you're going to look at like the, what, style of cooking is most like ritual magic if you define ritual magic as being uh you know the summoning ritual that's very difficult and may result in your being attacked at the end uh i might mention uh trying to learn how to do uh chinese style cooking because that's it uses simple ingredients but it's down to split second timing and a red hot wok and when i was trying to fiddle with that a few years ago i succeeded uh, about half the time and the other half the time uh, things went wrong it wasn't so great just that the magic spell required to season a wok or cast iron pan. I don't know. I've ever fully, yeah. <laughs> fully brought that off. You, you just, you just take the, you just take the minus one and go into combat anyway. That's exactly. Uh, but again, that brings us to the problem of what would you be doing in the, so I, I think probably unless it's that form of magic, the summoning of the great old ones, I think we're looking at some sort of potionry. Yep. Uh, something that you can take a swig of and, then uh, use actually in the field when you need to uh, at the moment. And I guess that uh, brings us back to various uh, herbs. So I guess uh, you would, whatever tradition you're working in, you would uh, come up with uh, whatever plant-based items are involved in making a, a potion and you would specify that you had uh, prepared it in advance. And if you have a system where there's a spell roll to see if your spell works, uh, if you miss your roll, obviously you left out the baking soda. And uh, if you make your roll, obviously you've made the, the potion properly and it goes off as, as it was uh, supposed to have done. Uh, that starts to bring up another practical problem in gaming, though, which is if we are envisioning the magic spell users of various stripes going off and doing a lot of prep time or looking for their special ingredients that have to go into the thing. That's interesting sometimes, right? You can have a whole adventure that's about, we have to go to Root Mountain in order to get this special mandrake that we need to go up a level. That's a clear incentive to do something. But if it's just the everyday thing of, well, the rest of you have a one-day rest and I got I to gotta look for some more uh, St. John's wort around here, how, how many times is that fun is, is another question that we often stumble onto here in the gaming head. Yeah, there's other basic possibilities. There is obviously the notion of cooking or cooking with already magical ingredients. So you can imagine the notion of a a, a dragon scale reduction or you make a, um, a, a risotto out of the ambulatory mushroom people. 
uh, uh, hopefully uh, they're uh, magical constructs, not actual people with hopes and dreams. Don't make risotto out of things with hopes and dreams. And so you can take various magical things out of the landscape and, and cook with it. And that becomes a thing. There is the uh, Golden Dawn system of, of perfumes and smells that correspond with magical effects. So you can imagine, uh, in addition to potionry, you can imagine having uh, gathered uh, the smell of roasting dragon, uh, even if you roasted it with your fireball. And, and then you very quickly uh, capture it in a, in a vial with, um, uh, with uh, a cunning seal. And uh, then you have the, the, the smell of roasting dragon and can use that later on in your ritual magic, or uh, possibly you just can throw it as a prepared fire cantrip of some sort. I think, as you say, Robin, because cooking is in itself a ritual activity, it maps better to ritual magic than it does to quick fire and forget magic, which is more your, what's that um, What's that white milky garbage that uh, computer programmers, Soylent, right? That's that's yes. what F20 magic is. It's, it's like Soylent and, and energy drinks and, and power bars and whatnot. And um, uh, five hour sleep spell, five hour sleep spells. Yes. Five hour haste. And it's, and it, it's that sort of thing, as opposed to the notion of, you know, this, uh, the ginger that grows on the side of this holy mountain has magical effects. Go get it. And using the food as a, as a MacGuffin. I, I think ritual magic is, is by far the, uh, the more delicious direction, uh, to point this, this activity. Um, there's a series of books, actually it's a two books by Michaela Ressner called The Stars Dispose and The Stars Compel. And the focus of the books is on the personal cooks to the astrologers of the Medici family. And so it's secret kitchen magic against natural astrology in the backdrop of Medici Italy. And uh, they're very good fantasy novels and they will make you very, very hungry when you read them. And maybe they'll give you an idea if you're playing not an F20 sort of game, but a longer term game, how to seamlessly meld cooking and uh, magic into an ongoing storyline. Uh, again, it's harder to make that the focus of a player character, unless again, you've got a, a game system or a game culture that allows for lengthy um, uh, downtimes and taking, you know, two to two to five hours to to prep a, a, a ritual or a spell. Although one way to do it, though, uh, come to think of it, is that you gain your spells by eating this meal that is cooked for you. Uh, the group uh, communally cooks it. This probably works best in a game world where everybody has some degree of magic. And uh, so you have your, you, you know, you can only eat so much. Uh, so you have to decide very carefully which items uh, that you're going to eat. And that explains why your spell uh, only lasts for X amount of time, because after uh, eight hours, it passes through your system. And then you uh, don't have your fireball from your hot chilies or your uh, sleep spell from your warm milk or, uh, or whatever it is. So that uh, and if you really wanted to, if you're at the kind of group that has a communal meal before you start playing that the spells that are available to you depend on the recipe uh, that the person bringing the potluck chooses to bring. And uh, each character class, uh, you know, might gain a, a different spell from the jambalaya, uh, depending on uh, what they are. So right. yep. uh, you could have that as sort of the uh, the ritual team building exercise at the beginning where you either literally or fictionally uh, create a meal together. 
And it could be that uh, part of it is that you're out on the trail. Uh, you don't, uh, you have to forage at the beginning and uh, it's like, oh, well, here's, okay, we got some mandrake. Uh, we found a, a, a bush fowl and uh, we've, uh, we've got these berries, which I'm 75% sure are not poisonous. Uh, if we put them all together, what magic does that allow us to work uh, this time? And so uh, you've, you've got the aspect of everybody cooking together, but then uh, when they need to be able to, to uh, release that magic, uh, in the scale of an action sequence, uh, they can still uh, go ahead and do so. And maybe that's the way to kind of uh, square that circle and have the uh, have the ritual, but also have the shorter term spells that you can actually use in play. Yeah, any sp- any system that has either a downtime component like D&D does or a uh, active gathering of magic uh, as an element like Ars Magica does, um, you can reinsert that back into it and... You can even have the notion that there are certain spells that you always got, but just like, you know, you need vitamins to not get beriberi or rickets, you need to eat certain foods to make sure that you can use all of your spells. So that can be a sort of a compromise between the, nope, you have to have cooked a a, a big old delicious meal and uh, too bad if you wanted to make a spell with tomatoes because it's the depth of winter and you just can't cast the tomato spell because there's no tomatoes anywhere. Or the option of all spells are power bars and they just sit in the bottom of your uh, pack like um, uh, iron rations and are indistinguishable from them. Um, so you have some spells that are innate to you or that if you cast them without having had the food before, it costs you some number of hit points. Um, but if you've eaten to replenish your spell vitamins, you're able to go ahead and cast not just those spells, but newer and different and better spells. And if you make sure going in that uh, you're not uh, uh, messed up during the winter, that uh, winter foods that are available contain uh, enough puissant magics to keep you surviving. Or maybe that's one of the challenges of, of the game is that you're really only a very good magician in the uh, spring, summer, and fall. And in the winter, you better hunker down and, uh, pr- and you know, learn new recipes because uh, you, you're not going to be able to go out. And of course, there's always some big challenge. The centipede men take advantage and attack uh, in January, uh, right when the last of the bacon gets used up or something. That makes it a really interesting world if there's one season when magic doesn't really work so much and that changes everything, right? That's when the the magicians have to hide from the authorities and uh, anybody who wants revenge against them and uh, people who, you know, things that you normally can't do because of magical wards you're able to do in the wintertime. Uh, but to get back to the idea of having to engage with food in order to use magic, I think it's always, players always like it better when an activity results in a bonus rather than just a permission. So if you're saying, well, you can't do your fireball unless you find a chicken, that's a drag. But if it's like, well, if you find find this special kind of chicken, your fireball will have uh, three times as many dice or, well, three times is is gross, but it'll have an extra three dice. And so uh, that then uh, gives you a sense of reward rather than the feeling that you have to jump through a bunch of hoops, especially ones that may be making you feel hungry and sad compared to your fast food meal that you wolf down in. 
Because you never want to have the characters eating demonstrably better than you did. That's always disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, it is called fantasy role-playing, Robin. I mean, the, it, isn't that part of the point is that your characters are doing things you can't do? And if and if that just means that they're enjoying a delicious meal while you sadly chew on Domino's pizza? Yes, but I, I, I can't fight a dragon in real life, but I could have decided to go to a good restaurant instead of this, so... <laughs> So on, on that note, I, I think before I start getting hungry, since we've got three more segments to go, uh, let's uh, have a, a, a mouth-watering commercial and uh, see what segment uh, waits for us on the other side. Oh, British intelligence, you just keep making terrible mistakes. In 1893, a spymaster from British naval intelligence tried to recruit the ultimate asset, Dracula. What happened? Biting. Oh, so much biting. But then they terminated him. Except they didn't. When the Cold War came along, what did MI6 do? Uh, they recruited Dracula. What happened? More biting. Oh, so much more biting. And then when the global war on terror arrived? Recruitment, Dracula... Biting. Well, the British government has surely run out of mistakes, then. If that's so, how did the spectacular Knights Black Agents campaign that documents it all wind up in the bundle of holding again? You don't mean the Dracula dossier? Unthinkably, yes. Dracula dossier by you, which is to say Kenneth Height and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan? Alas, yes. For a terrifyingly low 1995, you get the core Knights Black Agents rulebook, plus Dracula Unredacted and the Edom Field Manual. But Dracula Unredacted is the ultimate handout. Bram Stoker's Dracula with all the tradecraft secrets put back in. Not only that, but if you match the threshold price, the ever-mysterious price that just keeps ticking up, you get the entire Dracula dossier line. The Dracula dossier director's handbook and deck. The Edom Files. The Hawkins Papers. The Thrill of Dracula. The Van Helsing Letter. If you haven't got it, get it at the Bundle of Holding before Monday, November 2nd. And if you have got it, tell your friends to get it. At BundleofHolding.com presents Dracula Dossier 2020. So, so much biting. The smell of rancid coffee, the gloomy thumb through the fingerprint file, so let's say we've once more taken out and placed upon our desk the crime blotter. But this time around, uh, the crime is uh, a historical crime, goes way back to the 17th century and to Bolivia because Peter McAvaney wants to know about the great Potosi mint fraud. Uh, initially, this was proposed as a Ken's Time Machine segment, but as we often do with those uh, suggestions from our beloved backers, if they don't necessarily suggest a, uh, an alternate history, but just ask why Ken did something, uh, we'll move it to another uh, segment where we can just sort of tackle it uh, without the labored metaphor, <laughs> or or at least through another labored metaphor. A differently labored metaphor. So this is uh, one of the, the great first giant scams of, uh, uh, of the uh, modern uh, world, certainly of the Renaissance. And uh, as we mentioned, it begins in Bolivia. And uh, Ken, uh, why don't you uh, set the stage for uh, how the mining of a giant mountain of silver somehow resulted in greed and chicanery. Let us stroke our virtual or actual goatees as we think about that. I mean, go figure that that would happen the first and only time in history 
But that's what it was. And it was, in fact, a unique thing in history. In 1545, the uh, Spanish conquistadors, uh, polishing off the Inca Empire, got themselves to a mountain, which is known now as Cerro Rico, the Rich Mountain. And it is a mountain that, uh, like the Comstock lore, turned out to have a lot of silver in it. And metaphorically, people would say it's a mountain made of silver. And that is the reputation of Cerro Rico and of Potosi. So King Philip II sends a mining expert to build a uh, a mine and a mint on the mountain. And Cerro Rico is super high up in the Andes, so everything is at a very high altitude. A lot of the processes that they'd had for mining in Germany didn't really work that well, so they had to sort of reinvent them. And they basically uh, used uh, mercury to uh, amalgamate the, the silver ore and uh, make it easier to melt it out of the rock. And so th- once they figured that out, and then they figured out that uh, they were just sitting there right near a bunch of conquered Incans that they could use to do all the hard part, they built themselves uh, this amazing high-tech uh, silver mine in uh, Potosi. And the other thing that uh, Philip II did that was very smart is rather than make the mines themselves a royal monopoly, he made the silver a royal monopoly, and anyone who wanted to could mine it, but they just had to pay the king a rake-off of 20% of their mine. And so once they had all the hard part being done by contractors, and the king's job was just to collect the silver, they set up a mint the Royal Mint. Now it's the National Mint of Bolivia, but yeah, at so that time, this it was, is not only just an early crime, but an early licensing arrangement. Exactly. Um, they, they uh, set up the Royal Mint uh, in 1572 and um, uh, built the good old Robin pieces of eight. That's what they made in this mint. The uh, labor force by the 1600s, which is what we're talking about, is around 60,000 workers. The population of Potosi is about 160,000 people. There is the workers, there's the workers' families, and then there's the rich jerks who literally skim cream off the top. And in the 1600s, Potosi was probably the richest city in the world in terms of uh, average wealth, although obviously a lot of people zeroed out at the bottom. And they brought in luxuries from all over the world. So you would get, you know, people were dragging not just mercury up the sides of the Andes, but, you know, saffron so that they could have Spanish cooking at the top of a Bolivian mountain. It was a amazing uh, entrepot of uh, luxury and delight. And, and while we're talking about crimes, yeah. it should be noted that this is memorable as one sort of crime, but of course... A pervasive crime at that time was enslaving people. Yes. And about 10% of the workers I see here on your info sheet uh, were, in fact, enslaved. So right. uh, let's keep keep that in mind. Yes. And I am imagining that if your job is to lug uh, mercury up a mine or, in fact, engage in any other mining activity, that your uh, life is in danger and perhaps considerably uh, shortened and miserable. It's, it's pretty terrible. <laughs> yes. Um, and obviously, even if you are one of the 70% of Potosi workers that was a, a free employee, you were still breathing a lot of, uh, you know, mercury fumes and uh, zinc powder because you'd burn off zinc as part of the process. It was also one of the most polluted cities in the world. And uh, it, it it's super toxic uh, then and now. And the mint, we should emphasize, because 
people who had uh, the uh, skill of coining money were not as common as people who could be made to carry silver ore up and down a mountain. Uh, they brought in uh, specialists from Africa who they'd enslaved. So you would they would sail along the coast of Africa, and when they would grab people that had been metal workers, because, of course, West Africa is one of the great metalworking tradition uh, areas of the world, they would say, I know what to do with them, and they would pop them into the mint. So the mint basically was propagated on uh, the work of about 150 African slaves, mostly from the Congo, who uh, were bought from the Portuguese and put in the in the coin uh, area uh, of the mint. And so depending on the supervision, the coins would either be lovely and beautiful. And then if you were down, uh, you, you, you were, you, you, you know, were between shipments of Angolan slaves and Europeans had to do it. They would become what's called cobs, which are just sort of blobs of, uh, silver that you bang the, the symbol of the king into. And those cobs generally would get circulated in America and the, uh, nice, uh, reals, the, the pesos or reals, reals is a, uh, subset of pesos. There are eight reals to a peso, hence a piece of eight would go to Spain as part of the tribute money. And this is where, uh, the situation finds us as slowly it begins to trickle into Spain. The idea that maybe all the silver that's supposed to be in the coins, uh, by the law, of uh, 1642, the King Philip IV says, remember everyone, the real, the the peso, is supposed to be 93% silver, and they were coming up not so much 93%, maybe closer to 70% silver. And as this discovery blossoms, it becomes a ever-increasing crisis of liquidity, uh, which is terrible at any time, but this crisis of liquidity comes while Spain is fighting the 30 years war and uh, is losing it badly because suddenly Spanish treasure, which was what they really brought to the fight, uh, is not available to pay the Spanish infantry, which is the other thing they brought to the fight. So Spain's ability to project power is suffering uh, very, very badly as merchants in China, for example, stop accepting Spanish coins or demand a considerable um, uh, write down on Spanish coins because they say these are no good. They're, they're adulterated. They have, they have lead or, or, or whatever else in them and uh, zinc. And so the, uh, the economic circumstances are rippling around the globe. And finally the queen of Spain opens up her purse and takes out legendarily 10 coins, 10 uh, pesos, and of those 10, seven of them are debased. And the king says, all right, if it's literally in the queen's pocket money, now I really have to do something. And he sends an inspector, a man who uh, both knows finance and has the king's full confidence to investigate. And uh, this guy, Francisco de Nostaris Marin, who used to be an inquisitor, so you know his reaction is not going to be, oh, let's all just, you know, hug and hug it out and forget about it. If you're messing with the king's money, he's, he's going to send an inquisitor. <laughs> exactly. So uh, Nostaris Marin shows up in uh, Potosi in December of 1648. And oh, my goodness. Previously, the uh, sayers, when the complaints would come, they would say, well, you know, slaves, what are you going to do? They're they're a bunch of thieves. And, uh, for a while that, that flew because the king had other stuff he was worrying about. But when Marin shows up and they try that on him, he says, 
nope, we're going to execute the mayor of Potosi. We're going to execute the assayer of Potosi. We're going to execute two former treasurers of Potosi. We're going to imprison the royal governor of Potosi, and we're going to imprison three former assayers. And we're going to fire the current treasurer just for good luck. And as a seasoned inquisitor, it was a gigantic house cleaning in Potosi. And then they had to sit there. Poor uh, Nassaris Marin had to sit there and hand supervise the creation of new currency that would be accepted. And so those are called, um, I forget what they're called, but they're a, uh, a kind of money that had a special mark on them. Uh, oh no, they're, they're called, uh, Rotuses because the guy named Rotus was the guy that uh, became the new head of Sayer. Right. And you, you would refer to the old adulterated coins as Rachunas after the guy who used to be in charge and has just been <laughs> <Yes>. executed. So, <laughs> uh, that is, uh, one of the, uh, most colorful currency names, I think, in the history of money. Yep. And so, uh, Rotus uh, sort of was learning on the job and his coins were still, uh, not 93% pure. And so, the king had to revalue the real, which had never happened in 150 years. And then basically people would bring in their old Potosi money to get melted down and the king would charge them rake off for that, which you can believe did not make the king a popular guy uh, with anybody and especially not with merchants who were the people who had all the spare silver lying around. So that was another thing that harmed uh, the, the Spanish throne and its ability to raise money. Right. Well, the king's not going to do it on, on no. his dime or uh, Rochuna. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on his Rochuna. And it's not until 1653 that they finally get the currency back under control with an entirely new design. So it can't just be the old design with the word, you know, with an R on it. They have to just completely redesign the coins so the people will start taking them again. So by 1653, it's unscrewed pretty much. Uh, over the course of the debasement, and depending on where you look, you can see different dates for when it began. 1631, 1638, 1640 are all in um, what looked like well-researched pieces. So I assume the debasement begins as a trickle and becomes a flood as people recognize that why not take more? Uh, a standard criminal operation. But at a sort of a, a middle-of-the-road estimate, you can assume that they raked off between 8 and 17 million pesos, good pesos, not the garbage pesos, in the course of this theft. And that equates to between 2 and $5 billion of modern money uh, was stolen over this 10 to 17-year period. So do we know where that money went since the perpetrators mostly wound up executed? <laughs> well, it, 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 one assumes some of it went back into the king's coffers after they executed the guys and took their big chests of silver. And uh, three silver merchants, as, as I mentioned, guys who were the middlemen for the silver trade, were also executed as, as conniving at it. So we assume that some of that silver just went wherever Spanish silver went, you know, mostly to China. Some of it probably went to, you know, buy some pretty things for some lovely senoritas. And a lot of it just got, you know, uh, taken down the side of the Andes quiet like and shipped off to become, you know, pirate treasure. Maybe. Right. Because, of course, that's uh, as we start to turn this into a, a narrative or a plot hook. The obvious thing is there's a cache of uh, the silver that was diverted and uh, might still be in Bolivia. Uh, we can justify it being in anywhere in the world. And the right. characters uh, at any subsequent period can uh, discover yeah. uh, this hidden cache of uh, diverted silver 
and uh, there can be some chasing and uh, fighting over it. Right. This fraud doesn't just have effects on Spain and on the Thirty Years' War and on the Spanish army. This may have been part of why the Ming dynasty fell, Robin, because when the merchants and the small farmers, who were the basically the backbone of the Ming dynasty, suddenly were unable to feed themselves or pay their taxes because there's no silver anywhere. So the, the market crashes and the small farmers by, by this time have got such tiny plots that they can't actually grow enough rice to feed themselves. They were growing specialty crops that depended on a cash trade to unload. That turned into banditry and warlordism. And that basically undermined the Ming in the South at the same time that the Manchus are invading from the North. So when you say, what caused the fall of the Ming dynasty? Yes, it was the Manchus, but the reason that they didn't have the tax base or the soldiers to fight off the Manchus, the way they'd fought off eight zillion other northern invaders, is because suddenly the people who are paying the taxes and growing the food are bankrupt or have turned into bandits. And that's because of this giant silver crash, because Potosi was supplying something like half the coined silver in the world around this time. So... Imagine, Robin, that something happened to the value of the American dollar. Imagine that, 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 that suddenly people weren't accepting it or that it was costing much, much more. Well, you get the 1970s, Robin. That's what happened. And so same thing, only it was like a global 1970s for uh, Spain and China and uh, Southeast Asia and all manner of people who were, in theory, not particularly involved in a mountain in, in, in Bolivia. Well, having gone through a number of years in which uh, the American dollar fell so that it was at par with the Canadian dollar, uh, I sort of know what it feels to be the Ming dynasty. <laughs> yeah, so you, you're one with the Ming dynasty small farmer. Yes, the exchange rate is, has gone back in my favor, however, thank goodness. Yes. And the idea of possibly finding the uh, a cache of treasure uh, is just the beginning of this, that you could certainly do a scenario where uh, you are trying to escape the Inquisitors with your encumbering suit of uh, with the silver sewn in the pockets and... Uh, you could uh, be one of the inquisitors. Uh, the, you could be the team of investigators going in to figure out uh, who's perpetrating the scam. Although it seems like an easy mystery because the answer was everybody. Everybody. It was. It was. Let's see who has the authority to certify whether or not this sil silver is ninety three percent pure. That guy. He's probably in on it. <laughs> Execute him. <laughs> who's near silver and uh, lightly supervised? Right. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, head. it's 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 the whole you know financial establishment in Potosi basically is in on it, and one assumes that there were plenty of other minor prison sentences and and brandings on the face that just don't make it into the history books, because one assumes that an inquisitor is not just going to stop with like eight guys. Um, I, I assume that there was sort of a a a generalized purge of all the Potosi banksters and government officials all getting uh, some degree of, of, of dressing down by a very angry inquisitor. I think you can also, once we start talking about global capital flows, uh, there is a terrific comic book called the black Monday murders. That is about the notion that the flow of money is itself a magical act, that it's like the flow of blood or the flow of key or the flow of whatever. And uh, you can certainly uh, have some sort of cool early modern game of, of wizards and alchemists, who are tapping into this magical flow of money. And then suddenly circa 1638, all of their magic start uh, failing and you have a, a crisis of magic and they have to sort of scramble to figure it out. And you know, your, your player characters, of course, figure out, Oh, it's the silver at the source. Let's go see if we can, you know, either turn the spigot back on or 
take advantage of the fact that we are uh we are aware of the scam and make them deal us in with our our magical threats so it can be either a sort of a gangster movie where you're magicians and alchemists trying to um uh, bully the mayor of Potosi into letting you into the scheme or you can be outside magicians attempting to point the inquisition at the targets that you want taken out so that you can have a a, a better magical result in some fashion and if you want more sympathetic protagonists uh, of course, as you mentioned earlier, they tried to point the finger at the poor enslaved workers. And uh, so you could be them trying to uh, clear your name or just flat out escape before you're made the, uh, the scapegoat. I mean, that's that's one of the other possibilities is that if there's a bunch of, of skilled metal workers trapped in this mint at the top of a Bolivian mountain, ordinarily escape is impossible. It's it's like a, a, well, it is a death sentence. It's like a devil's island type situation. But when the Inquisitor shows up, you can do a great prison break game and you play uh, the the ringleaders of this uh, group of, uh, of coiners. And, you know, you have Congo and Kizi magic and you have, you know, uh, good combat skills from being a warrior back in Angola. And now you have a chance to use them. Yeah. All. As seasoned metal workers, we made armor and swords and, Yes, Set exactly. Aside for just this eventuality, right? And and so you could you could run it as a and, and that's and that's the way to have a, a sympathetic character who's running away from this situation is that you are uh, and on your way out maybe you help yourself to some of that silver because it's useful you've earned it in, in and yes you have uh, back wages and obviously there are uh, big populations even in the 1640s and 50s of freed uh, blacks in Brazil. So if you can get over the Andes Mountains and down into the Amazon, you can get to those communities and be welcome because you have money and ability. And those are the things that everyone loves, uh, unless, of course, you have the ability to steal money, in which case uh, the Inquisition doesn't love that. Uh, but that can be sort of a, a, a fun. Uh, uh, it begins as a, as a prison break. Then it becomes sort of survival horror as you go over the Andes and down into the Amazon. And then it can become a swashbuckling sort of a piratey game where you're fighting the hated Portuguese in uh, the interior of Brazil and maybe, you know, learning new wonderful things you can do. Uh, with Brazilian magics that you didn't know because you had been in Angola and it's a different sort of a, a magic situation. And, you know, you're building uh, Umbanda and, and Candomblé. You're just doing it at the beginning of the tradition. This is also basically when Candomblé is getting uh, established in the middle of Brazil. And maybe it's this huge tranche of ritual silver and skilled artisans that set Candomblé off. And so you are uh, making the first bunch of deals with those powerful spirits to uh, keep your people safe from the uh, Portuguese slave traders. Yes, this this blade has the has the blood of my supervisor at the uh, the metalworking uh, mint. Here you go. Uh, come down and uh, partake of it. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to sneak out of this uh, hut with whatever silver we have on us and uh, move and see what other hut waits for us on the other side. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast fresh and flavorful by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Lewis R. Evans. Noel Warford. Aryan Poutsma. Brendan Cloherty. And Brian Malcolm. Euphonious. Grammatical. Kerned. These words describe words, and they also describe the description of words. And they describe the word hut. That most abstract and beautiful of huts, the huts, where the raw materials of all the other huts are carefully and beautifully laid out by William Morris and his daughters. And here in Word Hut, uh, speaking of uh, me saying nice things about a socialist, we're talking about irony, Robin. <laughs> and that is a word that, unlike uh, uh, William Morris, it has been, let us say, abused and, and knocked around and given a hard time. It's like the word railroading in role-playing games. It has a bunch of... Uh, different definitions, depending on who you're talking to. Exactly. At, at least three, uh, and possibly more, depending on which dictionary you're reading and, and how late they are. And, of course, famously, uh, the thing that we all know is that Alanis Morissette was wrong uh, when she said it was ironic to have it rain on your wedding day. No, that's just sad. Except, <laughs> except, except, Ken, pedants must now weep. They must weep the sorts of tears that could drown a wedding because the Alanis Morissette definition of irony is now dictionary recognized because sadly for us peasants and pedants uh, both of those things the yep. uh, the langu languages keep moving meanings keep shifting depending on how people use words and enough people use the word irony to mean something unexpected that is darkly funny is now an officially recognized dictionary definition of the word irony, which ironically prevents many of us from well-actualing that. And we have to revise our notion, the, the well-known truism of Alanis Morissette's song being full of examples of irony that are not ironic. Ironically enough, subsequently, now, Ken, I'm sad to say they are. Well, Robin, uh, you have always been a gentler and more beautiful soul than I. I will remain on Mount Prescriptivism, killing barbarians with pots of boiling oil and correct use of the word irony. Uh, as long as I possibly can. Um, I, th I, I guess we should talk about the correct use of the word irony, which is basically the existence of an opposite. And according to Aristotle, who ought to know, uh, dramatic irony is caused by the audience knowing that two things are working in opposite directions, but the characters not knowing that. And that is the source of literally dramatic irony, right? Yes, and, and of suspense. Uh, mm -hmm. So that if... Uh, you see a film where you see the bomber plant the bomb, and then you're worried about the people on the streetcar. Uh, you are experiencing dramatic irony. Uh, however, if the characters are happily on the streetcar and then it blows up, uh, that's not dramatic irony and it's not suspense. It's 
surprise. And mm-hmm. so any gap And between, if it blows up just as they're saying, I can't wait to get to the grocery store, then that's Alanis Morissette irony. Exactly, yes. Uh, although it's not ruefully funny, so it probably... Well, it's, uh, it's, it depends on your perspective. Right. But yeah. Um, and I guess we should just go back uh, and quickly hit the, the main line, number one definition of irony, which is just using words uh, opposite to their meaning. So when you uh, roll a one and fumble and uh, you drop your shield and, uh, and your character uh, loses their protection against the centipede men and you go, well, that was a great roll. That is basic irony. You're mm-hmm. using words in, in uh, opposition to their meaning. Uh, and uh, we might also think of that as sarcasm, but actually that's uh, the, the central number one meaning of irony is, is your uh, saying one thing and meaning another and either we're supposed to uh, know this from context or uh, verbally that you're using it with an intonation that indicates that you're meant to draw the opposite conclusion from that. Yes. Uh, the reason I, w- I thought to talk about irony and how it's a slippery concept is that when uh, the president of the United States recently got the COVIDs, that uh, was described in some circles as uh, ironic or even an example of Shakespearean irony, which is wrong in a couple of ways. Uh, <laughs> it is, first of all, not ironic when the expected thing happens. If uh, someone uh, experiences a downfall, and as of this recording, no such downfall has occurred. If you experience a downfall as a result of your tragic flaw, the expected thing has happened. And that's not an ironic outcome. That's a classical outcome. That's an outcome that Aristotle himself would have approved of as orderly and expected. There might be some dark humor in it, but it has to be in some way a surprise or a uh, something being the opposite of its expectation in order for us to refer to it as ironic. And the um, uh, the concept comes out of Greek theater of where there was a character named Iron who is usually put against the Alazon, who's the braggart. And the Iron is meant to use understatement and uh, downplaying, dissimulating his own abilities as a counterpoint against Alazon-like boasting. And again, not a lot of irons in American politics on any side of the aisle, certainly not in the White House. So the dramatic irony began as, oh, I'm not so great, when in fact, obviously, you're great because you're on stage and you're a hero. And that statement of opposites is the foundation of the concept of irony uh, and rapidly becomes dramatic irony because, of course, the audience knows he's the hero because look at him. He's making fun of Alison, and we all hate Alison because he's a big jerk. And so that notion of ironic irony as rhetoric rapidly becomes dramatic irony when you watch it happen. And it's the sort of the notion of perspective that is crucial to the concept of irony, because if there's no outside viewer watching it, it's just happenstance. It's just surprise, or it's just a sad day at your wedding. Um, you have to imply that there is a cosmic viewer, as Hegel says, uh, the world is irony. If you assume that there's someone watching the world. And so therefore, if you believe in God, you believe that the world is basically a cosmic irony. This was Hegel attempting to sort of wire himself around the the notion of needing God for morality. And so uh, you have this whole uh, system 
of understanding using the, the, the term irony that, uh, is driven basically, uh, in, in kind of a, a neat Philip. It, it's almost like the notion of, of relativity and it, you can get senses of it, you know, obviously in the, in the classical and pre-classical era when you talk about traumatic irony, but even a notion of something like Archimedes saying, I can move the world if you give me somewhere to stand, you know, in third century BC, that was, that was a bit. We weren't thinking, oh, we'll just stand on the moon. Right. In, in the third century BC, you didn't stand on the moon. There was no other place to stand. Archimedes is, uh, making a claim that you could do this if you could somehow become a privileged observer or a privileged actor, but obviously you can't. And so that sort of philosophical notion is, I think, sort of low key burrowed into really every interesting development in, in science, art, and philosophy in a way, almost down to the 20th century, right? When ironically, as Alanis Morissette would say, everything becomes so scattered that irony becomes uh, the default perspective. And you can argue that in America that happened circa the second half of the David Letterman show. But you can certainly say that the notion of irony also depends on a certainty that we are now lacking. And so therefore the cosmic irony is the opposite of Hegel's cosmic irony, that the real irony is that there's no irony, right? And you can also speak of an ironic mode in narrative as the perspective of the author. So if the author is addressing things from an ironic or dry remove, if they're acting as an ancient Greek iron in reference to the things that they're describing, uh, if they are focusing on the difference between the uh, outer image of the characters and who they really are, uh, you could say that they are an ironist and they're referring to things in an ironic mode. Uh, Shakespeare, as I mentioned earlier, was not an ironist. He was a classicist. But Ben Jonson or uh, Moliere or Beaumarchais, uh, who are uh, poking fun at the pretensions of their characters, who are whose show no one inflated without then deflating them, are acting in that ironic mode. And as you point out, in pop culture... We had a recent wave of irony, and I'd argue that uh, that is associated with our generation, Ken. That's the, yep. the Gen X. I'm mathematically it's, late baby boomer, but culturally I'm Gen X. Right. It, it, it comes of growing up with the baby boom and yes, <laughs> needing needing to in some way distance yourself from that, ironically. Exactly. Uh, so it's the it's the difference between you know the, the flower power and punk. And mm -hmm. uh, we are now, as all waves do, uh, Ken, we're being washed up on the flotsam of cultural history. And I think we're now experiencing a wave toward uh, sincerity again and toward histrionic display of emotion rather than uh, ironic uh, detachment. The new sincerity. And uh, we all know what happens when this show starts to get uh, sincere, Ken. We cut to another segment.
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in... There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once again to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs uh, where we uh, wave at the uh, Fire King of the Salamanders up on the painting of the wall and then head on in to meet with the consulting occultist. And this time around, uh, we are engaging the services of the consulting occultist on behalf of beloved Patreon backer Thomas Casey, who says the Portuguese modernist writer Fernando Pessoa is a fitting subject of speculation for consulting occultists and students of Liptony in his own right. But I was hoping you could shed some light on his relationship with Alistair Crowley. And so, uh, Ken, uh, why don't you uh, start with that first bit about Pessoa and his baseline level of occultism and elliptony. All right. Pessoa, according to people who know, uh, I am not a Portuguese poetry scholar, so I am just based on the fact that the Portuguese government takes him very seriously indeed. Uh, Pessoa is one of the great modernist poets of Portugal. Uh, Portuguese literary guys put him up there with Camoas in the pantheon of Portuguese poetry. And in his lifetime, as with most poets, he was uh, less than acclaimed. Um, and so he made his living translating business letters as well as works of literature. And I don't know if this is a part of his personality or a thing that he did to stop himself from being bored stupid. Uh, I, I expected sort of both. He began to use in his poems and his uh, and his translations what he called heteronyms. We we call them pseudonyms, but he used the term heteronyms to mean not just different names, but also different personalities. So he would have one personality that was for writing uh, love poetry, and another personality that was for writing uh, works of, uh, of of drama, or another personality uh, was really into fish, and another personality lived in a different part of Lisbon than he lived in, and talked about how his neighborhood was the best neighborhood in Lisbon, despite it not being Pessoa's neighborhood. And so it, it, it got very strange and very odd, and I suppose one should not be surprised that he began to have what are called semi-spiritualist experiences. I'm not sure what that means. You have half a seance. Uh, and that starts at around 1912. By that time, Pessoa is 24. And uh, that continues. He gets into the occult based on those and begins translating theosophy into Portuguese. That happens 1915 to 1916. In March of 1916, as though he's been burying himself in occult writing and thinking for three years, he has a series of astral visions and decides he has become a medium. And he can see auras and he has a cool effect. Uh, he looks into the mirror and he sees different faces, which he decides are the faces of his heteronyms. So his, he's basically tulpifying himself, Robin. So much fun. Uh, 
He becomes a big astrology uh, fanatic, uh, starts casting horoscopes for everything, not just people, not just clients, but also for his heteronyms and for magazines and buildings and all kinds of stuff. He's very excited about astrology. And when he uh, gets into Aleister Crowley, he starts reading Crowley in 1917 and is uh, burbling along happily until in 1929, he reads uh, The Confessions, Crowley's auto-hagiography, as Crowley put it. And realizes that Crowley has got his own horoscope wrong, which is so perfect, by the way. I love every part of this story, except that Pessoa dies young. Um, but anyway, he writes to Crowley uh, via his publishers, Mandrake Press, in November of 1929 to say, hey, just looking to see if there's any of the new volumes of Confessions available. P.S. He got his horoscope wrong. Sorry to mention that in a business letter. And Crowley writes him back. And then in December, uh, Pessa was super excited that Crowley wrote him back. And so he sends him three books of his own poetry in English. And Crowley responds, apparently genuinely. And I, you know, Robin, that I hate it when a genuine human emotion can be ascribed to Aleister Crowley, when any positive thing happens. But he did actually like Pessoa's poetry. And given how relentlessly mediocre i mean not lovecraft bad but not great crowley's poetry was it's kind of surprising to know that he did have good taste but he um uh, he said uh, pessoa uh strangely enough is the first person to write shakespeare since shakespeare which is another wild sort of crowleyan statement but he kept saying it even after pessoa was no conceivable use to him so he must have meant it so they become uh, pen pals, and in September of 1930, Crowley and his then Scarlet Woman, a artist uh, named Hani Jaeger, a German lady who was into a lot of stuff that Crowley was into, this being a family podcast, I shall forbear to discuss it, but if you are familiar with the sorts of things Crowley got up to, Hani enjoyed them. She uh, had apparently a masochistic personality. Uh, she was not as fond of having third parties in the ritual, but put up with it for the magic. But she was also something of a, uh, of, of a high maintenance, uh, scarlet woman. Um, Crowley called her the monster and the little green pig. So little green pig, I guess, is what he called her when he was being nice. And monster <laughs> is what he called her when he's talking about her to Fernando Pessoa, you know, out on the streets of Lisbon. Oh, my God. You won't believe what the monster got up to. And she would have hysterical fits and insist that she was being followed by spirits or uh, jealous lovers or whatever and threaten to leave Crowley all the time and storm around and and. Uh, lose her luggage and blame the hotel and, and basically cause the kind of scene that if you are planning to skip on your hotel bill, you don't want people causing. So Crowley meets uh, Pessoa's friend, uh, Raul Leal, and uh, Pessoa May was certainly present at the meeting. And we know from Crowley that uh, he initiated Raul Leal probably into the OTO or maybe the AA on the 9th of September. And let people know what those are. Uh, those are uh, Crowley's um, uh, uh, after Crowley was bounced out of the Golden Dawn. He basically, by force of personality, took over a similar German mystical order called the OTO, the Order of Templars of the East, Ordo Templus Orienti, and the AA became his even better version of a magical secret society, the Argentinium Astrum, uh, that was all about um, being initiated in the proper way that Crowley had established in his own 
workings and research and making things up. And because he made it up, he couldn't be kicked out of that one. He couldn't, you could not kick him out of the, he was, uh, he was never kicked out of the OTO. In fact, he just sort of like, whenever people would leave, he would just say, well, you've started your own OTO. Good luck with that. You're, you know, excommunicated from the proper OTO. Uh, but yeah, the AA, no one can be kicked out of, except I guess someone Crowley wanted to kick out. So possibly Pessoa was initiated uh, into the OTO or the AA at that point. We don't know uh, because Pessoa didn't mention it. So anyway, um, uh, Hani Jaeger finally gets sick of Crowley's friends, friends showing up for the magical working and storms out in a huff on the 20th of September. And we have Crowley's diary from the time. And he's like, well, I'm not going to ask because it'll make me look desperate. And she probably just went across town. And then what it certainly, it dawns on him that she's literally left and she's gone to Germany. He gets very, very mad and decides uh, to fake his suicide. And this is something that he'd thought of doing twice before. He, he thought of doing it in 1923 to uh, embarrass uh, Mussolini's government after they threw him out of Kefalu in Sicily. And then he thought of doing it in 1929 and tried to get a French uh, writer to help him with it. And the French writer said, that's stupid and self-aggrandizing and I won't have any part of it. Uh, because a fake suicide obviously pretty much needs an accomplice. And in Pessoa, he found one. So he and Pessoa went down to uh, the Boca do Inferno, which is a cave on the uh, Portuguese coast. And uh, Crowley, by the way, says very mean things about it in his uh, diary. He says, um, uh, the west of Scotland should see the so-called Boca do Inferno here. It deserves a good laugh. So <laughs> Cave shaming among cave all of his shaming. other sins. So Crowley leaves a note under his cigarette case at the top of the Boca do Inferno, uh, and then gets on a boat and goes to, um, uh, or I guess he gets on a train and goes to Hende in Spain. And then from there goes to, uh, Germany and, uh, Crowley has seemingly vanished. And, uh, Pessoa is the Crowley's, you know, known associate in Lisbon. So when the cops show up, Pessoa looks at the note and says, yes, that is my friend, Alistair Crowley's handwriting. And he explains what the LGP means. The note is LGP. Uh, it's in very bad Portuguese. Uh, can't live without you. The other mouth of hell that will catch me won't be as hot as yours. Uh, Hisos, Tu Li Yu. And Pesso explains Tu Li Yu is a Chinese sage who lived about 1000 BC. And of course, it's actually just Crowley uh, orientalizing Tudaloo, uh and being a jerk. And no one quite knows what Hisos means. And uh, also the note is covered in magical symbols, which Pessoa explains. And then he nails it by the next day running into the police station and saying, I've seen Crowley's ghost. So that makes it a big newspaper sensation. You Crowley, can't see someone's ghost without it being a suicide. Right. That's, that's ghost rules. That's ghost law. And so Crowley is in Spain reading about his uh, suicide in the newspapers and enjoying it. The um, uh, American consul who apparently Crowley and Hani Jaeger had gotten into some sort of scuffle with before. Not sure why either of them had standing with, with the American consul, but uh, they both thought he was an idiot. And when Crowley went to the American consul to say, my girlfriend disappears, uh, the American consul said, and you deserve it. And that is America operating overseas as it always has with calm sensibility. So anyway, Crowley fakes his uh, suicide, mostly to show off and get in the papers, partly to annoy Hani Jaeger. Uh, and then he reappears at a exhibit of his own paintings, a, uh, you know, a memorial exhibit of his own paintings in Berlin on October 11th. 
and everyone has a good laugh. Because if, if faking your own death is an act of narcissism, uh, coming back from your own death is narcissism cubed. Exactly. And Pessoa and Crowley's correspondence sort of tapers off by the end of 1931. Pessoa dies in 1935 at the age of 47 of either cirrhosis or pancreatitis. Basically, having all those heteronyms, he has to drink for 80. So th- that knocks him down. And uh, his letters... Uh, back and forth to Crowley and a detective novel that he started three different times about Crowley's fake suicide languished in his papers because his relatives, weirdly enough, did not want the greatest poet of modern Portugal associated with the wickedest man in the world. But enough time went by that by 2008, his next generation of heirs, uh, first of all, thought Crowley was interesting, and second of all, thought that you could write a book about it and make some money, and third of all, thought you could sell his correspondence and make some money. And uh, the government of Portugal uh, briefly threatened to stop the auction. Uh, the auction was scheduled for October or November of 2008, which would have been the 120th uh, anniversary of Pessoa's birth. That's why they wanted to do it. And of course, as these things always are, it's settled because... Something completely unassociated with the Portuguese government buys the archive at auction for 130,000 euro, and that is the Portuguese National Power Company, which then immediately donates it to the National Library of Portugal to go with the rest of the Pessoa papers. So uh, if you are a Pessoa-curious Crowleyite or a Crowley-curious Pessoan, go go you to the National Library of Portugal and, and dig through. They very carefully do not have it in one folder, apparently. They've scattered it. Uh, through a bunch of different collections. So you have to really do some work uh, to assemble it. But on the other hand, the whole thing was published by one of Pessoa's descendants. Uh, so you can buy that book and read it if you really care. But that is basically uh, where the story ends. Pessoa atop his plinth and Aleister Crowley in a yet a third Boca di Inferno. And so do we know if, if this burned uh, Pessoa out on occultism, the, the brush with Crowley, or uh, did he continue to hang out with his, his heteronyms? I mean, he was still, I think by 1931, he was basically set. And when you look at it, you know, objectively, of the people Crowley met, Pessoa didn't really suffer that much. He was already, you know, drunk and loopy and dissociative, and surely being buddies with Crowley didn't help. But he didn't, like, spend any of his own money. He didn't, you know, go to jail because in Portugal they're like, well, he's a poet. What are you going to do? Um, you fake a suicide. Let's have a good laugh. So he doesn't really suffer any adverse consequences, except, of course, you know, the spiritual consequences of having Crowley stink all over your soul. But, you know, as as things go, as far as I know, and again, I'm not the Portuguese poet expert, he just ticks along until his uh, sad and premature death from alcoholism, which, again, not brought on by knowing Crowley, though certainly not helped by knowing Crowley, I'm sure. It made them peas in a pod when they did uh, hang out together. Yeah. Although Pessoa, his sexuality was less robust and avaricious than Crowley. He had sort of a girlfriend named Ophelia, and they never married. And so there's sort of questions, is she like a beard? Was he uh, closeted? Or was he just the kind of guy who didn't want to commit? Because, you know, how can you ask one woman to marry 80 guys, Robin? That's that's weird and wrong, even in Portugal. And maybe he realized that he was not husband material. But anyway, he had a girlfriend. That's what we do know about Pessoa. And his occultism was less of the sort of uh, magic-focused occultism of Crowley and more about initiatory, uh, not initiatory, but mystical experience 
and, like I said, astrology, which he really loved. So to scenarioize this, if the characters are going to uh, Portugal in the 20s or 30s, they can uh, meet up with Pessoa and uh, possibly meet some of his heteronyms and get a local uh, supernatural uh, knowledge from them. Uh, there's the uh, question of what they were attempting to uh, summon by faking Crowley's suicide. Is there a heteronym of, of Crowley uh, lurking around? Is the the ironic opposite of Crowley uh, a good <laughs> entity that you get help from? That's that's what the Crowley shadow is. That if you do a ritual at the at the mouth of hell, you can catch his his soul as it's leaving his body, and it turns out. His soul is better than his body, which is a wild Gnosticism, I'm sure. Um, uh, Pessoa was certainly influenced by Poe and Yeats. And so he's uh, wired in with the, both the decadence and uh, the modern day occultists. So he would maybe have been able to sort of, it'd be fun if Pessoa is working the long con on Crowley, that he realizes early that Crowley doesn't know what he thinks he knows. He recognizes that his astrology is bunk, not regular bunk, but bunk even for astrology. And then says, I can lure this guy in and drain off his magical power and use it to maybe make one of my heteronyms uh, immortal after my death. And so I think that's sort of a fun uh, Tim Powers reversal stand it on its head, where instead of Crowley inveigling Pessoa into some sort of black magic, it's Pessoa basically, you know, planting the seed, incepting Crowley with this notion of committing suicide so that Pessoa can carve off Crowley's boiling sexual magic energy and use it to uh, fuel one of his heteronyms who can then walk around and, and be immortal in Portugal and just sit around and, and drink pastas in cafes and, and never die and observe things ironically. Uh, which is what Pes Pes would like to do. Which would then uh, allow you to uh, uh, meet him in, in any time period, including the uh, the current day. Exactly. And that's the tip-off, right? Because he says that, oh, well, I, I know it was a suicide because I ran into his ghost. Well, th that's the ghost, right? That's the, that's the heteronym. Exactly. And so when, when we reach the point on the podcast when we have not only heteronyms, but we have ghosts of heteronyms, it's time for us to uh, sneak out before we have the spirit of a ghost of a heteronym, and we all swirl back into uh, infinitude because uh, we don't deal in infinitude here because we have another podcast a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Grain Press. Asphagal. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Instead of questionable silver coins, invest in this podcast survival alongside such argent backers as... Drew Eicholtz. Daniel Markwig. Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. Jan Zaleski. And Pedro Garcia. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the Red Herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.